Welcome back to the South African Border Wars podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode seven, and the political pressure is building when it comes to the United Nations and Southwest African independence. At the time that South Africa had started a series of show trials under the Terrorism and Suppression of Communism Act in 1967, and that was for SWAPO members, the UN Council for Southwest Africa was drawing up a timetable for the territory's independence, supposedly set for 1968. What really happened on the ground was that Swapo's armed wing, the People's Liberation Army of Namibia, or PLAN, changed their focus from northern incursions into Avomberland to the eastern finger of the Caprivi Strip. That was after the South Africans had crushed the first attempts at setting up a base at Ngulumbash, as we heard last episode. PLAN's initial insurgency was defeated and a new strategy was required, and the local population in the Caprivi continued to vacillate in their support. They did not at least initially take too kindly to the outsiders, mainly Ovambos, pressurizing their leaders to support the struggle for independence. After concerted action by the SA police who were still in command of operations, the Caprivi strip insurgency then quietened down for a few months. In October 1968, two large groups of insurgents slipped into the Caprivi from Angola, but the SA police were tipped off by locals once more, and within a week, 68 of these Swapo insurgents had been arrested. By December 1968, the latest attempts by PLAN and Swapo had failed. Almost 180 PLAN cadres were in jail or had been killed, and the infiltration ended once more with operatives withdrawing back into Zambia. The UN General Assembly then voted to change the name of Southwest Africa to Namibia, which was of course scorned by the South Africans. However, the first people of Namibia were the Nama, so despite many historical tomes being churned out by Pretoria, the name made sense. It was only months later that the UN Security Council voted to endorse the termination of South Africa's mandate over the territory and called on Pretoria to withdraw by October 1969. John Forster's government ignored the ruling. Once again, the UN approached the World Court to confirm its ruling, which it did eventually in 1971, saying that the continued South African presence was illegal. Forster's government ignored the court ruling, preferring to focus on its fight against Swapo instead. It was at this stage that Swapo and Plan decided to begin to use a more insidious weapon against the local authorities. Because the population in Ovambaland and the Caprivi Strip refused to rise up in rebellion, it was now decided to use landmines to destabilize security. In April 1971, a Russian-made mine blew up a police vehicle near Katima Mulilu in Caprivi. Between 1971 and 1972, five policemen were killed and 35 wounded in landmine explosions. The new tactic seemed to be working, as it was in Angola at the time and in Mozambique, where the Portuguese never fully managed to overcome this form of warfare. It would take five more years before the South Africans began to deploy more effective mine-protected vehicles, but these weapons began to cause collateral damage amongst the Ovambo and Caprivi people. This further complicated Swapo and Plan's attempts at convincing the locals to support their initiatives. However, that too would change as the SADF began its campaigns, but I'll get to that story in later podcasts. The Hearts and Minds campaigns inside Southwest as well as internationally began to accelerate. Swapo dutifully trotted out various narratives about the destruction of villages by the SA police, which were fiction and the South Africans trotted out their narratives of their right to control the territory, which was equally fictitious. The UN General Assembly then invited Secretary General Kurt Voltheim to begin new talks on a settlement for Southwest Africa. His first move was to visit both territories, and in South Africa he was told that self-determination was Pretoria's aim. 
Baltime then appointed Dr. Alfred Escher of Switzerland as his personal representative to kick off negotiations and sent him to Pretoria. Meanwhile, across the Canadian Ruakana rivers inside southern Angola, the Portuguese were fighting a full-scale war of independence against UNITA and to some extent there against the Russian-backed MPLA. The entire region was destabilized and a huge amount of arms and ammunition began to wash up on the southern African shoreline. In nearby Rhodesia, the arms struggle had begun in earnest and Forster's government was hedging its bets, preferring to dispatch SA police instead of the army to help fight incursions in Rhodesia by ZANU and Zipra guerrillas. The Rhodesians were not impressed by the South African police partnership. Most of the men who pitched up were glorified riot police and had been employed in Southwest to patrol the operational area. As historian Annette Seegers explains, their approach was search and capture with the aim of a criminal trial. They were not trained to be soldiers. This did not work against motivated men and women of Swampu who were trained as soldiers by Eastern Bloc countries. Proper patrolling that characterized the SA Defense Force strategy with its important hearts and minds component was not part of the initial SA police approach. That was a mistake. By 1968, the riot police deployment was seen for what it was, a waste of time and effort, and the SAP militarized its training, changing to counterinsurgency and launching the first courses in Pretoria. The use of only white men was a big mistake, which the SA police rectified to some extent in 1972, but for many in Ovambaland and the Caprivi, the damage had been done. These white policemen did not speak the local language and were clearly deployed in a racist fashion. The neutrals on the ground in both parts of Southwest duly noted their attitude to black people. The shootings at Old Town and Vintook and Sharpville in South Africa had severely damaged the perception of what the SA police were doing in spite of significant propaganda attempts by Pretoria. Then one of the most significant people we'll cover in this series had just been deployed from South African Army headquarters in Angola to Southwest African Command in Vintook. Yanni Heldenhaest arrived at the command HQ in April 1970. The command in Vintuk was responsible for the area south of the Red Line, which was a boundary set up in the north to control foot and mouth disease. This was not an ideal situation for the SA Defence Force. They were kept away from the hottest area of conflict, with its growing landmine and insurgency challenges. The Kaukaland, Ovambo, the Kavango, the western and eastern Caprivi, and what was known as Bushman Land, was off-limits, controlled by the SA police. The first officers at Vintuk HQ would form the core of future experience that would hold the Defence Force in good stead, at least militarily. People like Brigadier André van Deventer, Fritz Lutz, Choki Kutzer and Magnus Malan. The latter, however, would sully his good name years later in a much maligned attempt at fomenting a coup against South Africa's democratic election process, but that's for another time. Van Deventer was a really interesting man. One day he picked up a strange-looking creature, a centipede, which he sent for further analysis. It was unknown by science and immediately named Comocephalus deventeri after Van Deventer. As Keldenay says in his autobiography, Southwest may be long gone, but Comocephalus deventeri still leaves its tracks in the dust of Namibia. By 1972, Swapo had been extremely busy with its own Hearts and Minds campaign, and in that year, a host of countrywide strikes took place across Southwest. This fact, along with the increased Swapo and plan activity in the Caprivi and Northern Territories, finally convinced the National Party leadership back in Pretoria that the SA Defence Force should take over the war. This was a momentous decision. The other option would have been to escalate negotiations, but this was not feasible. 
for these leaders for many reasons. They viewed what was happening in nearby Rhodesia, Angola and Mozambique with trepidation and a single shared narrative. All these southern African nations with their white minorities who ruled the black majority were in danger of being swamped by African nationalists. You can understand why each preferred the route deployed so successfully by their ancestors to fight against the forces ranged on the other side rather than to discuss peace. Firstly, in Angola, here the Portuguese had fought for more than a decade and by 1972 had begun to succeed to some extent in their own war against UNITA, the MPLA and FNLA. South African police and then Defence Force units were embedded at times in the Portuguese patrols and learning how to fight in Angola. In Rhodesia, the SA police had also learned how an insurgency could be fought on the ground using small, highly mobile patrols that were motivated and well-supported. The use of landmines by insurgents, their constant pressure on the local communities, and the manner of disrupting administration was all noted by the South Africans. Pretoria believed it could utilize its greater numbers of white men and their financial power to generate the equipment of war and then overcome this perceived African nationalist threat. In spite of the lack of combat experience, at least initially, the SA Defence Force was actually better placed to do the job, but it needed to escalate training and improve operational capacity. General Constant Foljun, who was to lead the SADF later, was one of the officers who had planned for this moment. He knew the police would not have the capacity to do the job, and he wanted on-the-ground experience for his Defence Force members. Because we all knew it was going to come South Africa's way, he said in his biography later. By the beginning of 1973, PLAN had recovered from its earlier losses and launched an intensified campaign of political activation, intimidation and murders of local officials. They also began to record successes against the South Africans, which unnerved Pretoria. Police patrols were ambushed and shot up. The number of police casualties began to rise. A police camp was attacked by PLAN insurgents using recoilless guns, which was an escalation of the level of violence. These were weapons that could be deployed against armoured military vehicles, let alone policemen. As usual, the planned mode of operation was attack, then withdraw across the border in Zambia, where the South Africans could not operate. This technique had been used to great effect by the Viet Cong in Vietnam until the Americans began their own form of cross-border incursions and bombing campaigns. What would the South Africans do? By the end of 1973, it was obvious that the SA police did not have the power to overcome this perceived threat. They had failed to achieve any sort of control over the Caprivi, let alone the strikes and protests going on in southwest African towns and cities. Remember, the SA police were also fighting alongside the Rhodesians, monitoring the now-banned ANC in South Africa, and trying to police southwest. Meanwhile, the South African general public was not aware of just how serious matters had become. At this point, the government controlled all broadcast media in both South Africa and Southwest and restricted access to independent journalists. When they did write stories, Pretoria found it easy to whitewash them using narratives of us and them. For the nationalists, they presented the storyline that it, the international press was motivated by lies and distortion and wanted to destroy whites in Africa so that everything they wrote must be false. It's incredible just how successful this propaganda campaign began something I'll return to over the course of these podcasts. While some reporting was allowed, it was very difficult for outsiders to enter the conflict zones, the red zone, the Caprivi, without some form of chaperoning by the SA police and later SA Defence Force. After all, a journalist's car could easily set off a landmine, killing those on board, so journalists were embedded in the units 
and most of these ended up making a name for themselves in the coming border war. But they were not spending an awful amount of time sitting in the Ovambo villages listening to black points of view. That would become obvious as the war developed. As the SADF was about to take over the fight against Swapo, at the United Nations, developments were afoot. Kurt Voltheim reported back to the General Assembly that there was no common ground between the UN and Pretoria, and the Security Council retaliated by severing all further contacts. However, South Africa had shifted ground, albeit slightly, agreeing to free elections and southwest independence. The problem was the timetable. Pretoria was speaking vaguely about 10 years' time, but the General Assembly wanted this to take place within 24 months. There was another much bigger problem for all. Swapo and the National Party of South Africa could not agree on the basics of negotiations should they take place. In the manner of other freedom struggle movements, Swapo had set itself up as the main voice of the people and refused to entertain the involvement of other parties in this negotiation. South Africa was determined that other internal parties be at the table. Swapo said these could not because they were puppets of the apartheid regime. So war it would be. While the political overtones were decidedly negative, the SA Defence Force began to scale up its logistics and other support in Southwest Africa. By the second half of 1973, increasing numbers of Defence Force personnel and quantities of equipment began to arrive in the operational areas, the Red Zone. This was carried out in great secrecy, at least at first. South Africa's citizens, like the Americans in the opening gambit in Vietnam, had been told very little of what was actually going on at this time. It was a need-to-know basis. The first that the general population in South Africa got to know about the increased militarization was a speech in the then Natal province by the Minister of Defense, P.W. Butter. He mentioned that the SA police were involved in fighting insurgency in Rhodesia and in Southwest, but then said something that historical writer Willem Steenkamp calls more ambiguous. It is always a difficult question to know when to switch over from police to military action. Terrorism in South Africa is becoming more and more a war of low intensity, but gradually escalating with the bringing in of sophisticated weapons and the development of the Tanzam Railway. It was his reference to escalation and the Tanzam Railway that is most interesting. That was a line built by the Chinese to link landlocked Zambia with the coast. It was also a way that arms could be delivered to Zambia and these would find their way into southwest. When Boerter was asked whether a better trained force was needed on the border with Angola, he said yes. Then he mentioned something that would affect me personally and many other young white males in South Africa. Boerter reminded everyone at the meeting in the town of Glencoe in Natal that legislation had been laid before Parliament that would allow national servicemen to voluntarily extend their training period from 12 to 18 or even 24 months, adding that The idea is to bring about a force under arms to be ready on all occasions to act as a deterrent. So the date for the SADF's assumption of responsibility for counterinsurgency in the operational area was set up for April 1st, 1974. We must now halt and secure the perimeter. Next episode, we'll pick up the story as the SADF begins their long campaign and take a look at what happens when Portugal's revolution pulls the rug out from under their colonies in Africa. You can head off to the website abwarpodcast.com where you can find a link to send me an email if you're motivated to have a chat. You can also rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination or for any quicker comments, you can contact me on Twitter at Des Latham. Till next, goodbye.